Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. It's Friday, October 15th, and we're talking about Informatica. I'm your host, Dylan Lewis, and I'm joined by Fool.com's idealistic ignoramus of unindexed information, Brian Feroldi. Brian, how's it going? Dylan, it is good to be back. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been together, so it's nice to see your smiling face yet again. It's always good to hang out with your friends, you know? I mean, and, and we get the benefit of doing it on a show uh, for, for listeners every week, or almost every week. We take some weeks off here and there. Um, we also, in, in a way, Brian, get to hang out with our listeners because, you know, we get ideas for shows uh, from the folks who listen to the show. And we got one recently from one of our listeners, John. And, you know, sometimes a company comes across our radar, you know, by way of, uh, you know, someone we work with or someone that listens to the show. And I, and I haven't heard much about it. And I don't know, you know, what kind of direction it's going to go in for a conversation. In this case, Informatica, company I didn't know, but company that lends itself to so many interesting conversations about investing. This company is involved in data, and it is a company that I got first exposure to about 10 years ago. This company was previously a publicly traded company. It since went private, and John put it back on our radar because they are now coming back to the public market. So thank you, John, for the show idea. Love it. And as always, folks, if you have ideas for the show, industryfocus.fool.com or at MFIndustryFocus on Twitter. Yeah, John wrote in and said, I'd love your view on Informatica. They filed their S1 last week. They've been around for more than 25 years, went public, went private, now a second IPO in the works, and they've transformed from selling licenses to subscriptions. So this is a business that is uh, kind of in the middle of, Brian, one of the great transformations that we've seen a ton of businesses go through. It it opens up a great tech conversation for us, and I think we're going to get into that, especially when we talk about the company financials. First, let's just kind of break down exactly where they live in the cloud, because it can be kind of hard to parse that with some of these businesses. Yeah, as John kind of teed up, this company is actually almost 30 years old, and they really, Informatica is hyper-focused on data, uh, specifically something that there's a shorthand fold called ETL. That just stands for Extract, Transform, and Load. So they are experts and have been for almost three decades at finding data, data silos, taking that information, cleaning it up, and transforming it so that it can be loaded into whatever application or tool you want to analyze it. Yeah, and the way that I most easily think about this is just the the different people that may interact with different companies on that value chain in the cloud. And so say you're using AWS to actually store whatever it is uh, that you have on the cloud in terms of data, and say you're using something like Salesforce or Tableau uh, for the end user to actually make sense of that data. Uh, and they call that kind of the last mile of data. This company exists in the middle where they are helping people better manage and make sense of it so that those systems can then make it even more useful for the end user. And this company is targeting enterprises, so really, really big businesses which have thousands of places that they're actually generating data and possibly hundreds that are being stored. And one simple way to to think about this is a simple use case for this company. Imagine one part of your company is storing customer names and the fields are listed as first name, last name. And another one, you have a different group of customers that's listed as last name, first name. Well, you can't just copy those two things together and put them together. You actually need the data to be cleansed and cleansed before it can be all loaded into one system. That's the kind of thing that Informatica specializes in. 
right? And they bring AI into that process. And so that, that that's a big part of kind of where this company is now. Um, this is not necessarily where this company has been the entire time. They've had to modernize and kind of move as the industry has moved and become much more cloud-focused. That's exactly what we we're seeing here. And that's what's most notable about this company. Uh, for, for Again, this company is almost 30, 30 years old. And 30 years ago, the software business model was perpetual licensing model. Uh, with the rise of the cloud, we've seen many companies have to transition over to a subscription-based model. That's exactly what this company started to do in 2015. And we've seen that, that transition work out beautifully for a number of companies. However, it always does wonky things to the company's financials in the short term. But we are the company is at the point now where it's starting to see the fruits of those labors pay off. Yeah, it's a painful process to go through and and the numbers get ugly fast. Uh, you have to make the difficult decision to sacrifice, you know, short-term profitability, very often short-term growth for long-term moving over to what we know to be a generally more successful business model, one that's stickier, one that leads to recurring revenue. We'll be getting into that as we talk about the company financials, but we want to see software businesses and cloud businesses take this step because we know, Brian, that, that you need to really in order to survive and to be competitive, uh, both you know as, as a provider, but really also for investors to be interested in you as a business. Yeah, it's definitely where the industry is going. And we've seen so many companies start to get there. But as we've talked about many times in the show, while the cloud has existed for almost 20 years now, it still makes up a relatively small percent of overall uh, compute spend. Uh, as a result of that, Informatica is is out there meeting customers where they are. So it does offer customers uh, help within the cloud. They can also go through a hybrid model. And the company is also still servicing companies that are still 100% on-premise. So no matter where you are in the cloud transition, Informatica can meet you there. Why don't we walk through some of the services that they offer, uh, specifically some of their platform services, just gives people a little bit of a sense of what's under the hood with this business. Sure. So the company has a number of different services that it uh, that it focuses on. Uh, it calls out a few different a few different ones. Uh, so the first here is that thing that we just covered, which is data integration or the ETL, the extract, transform, and load. That's just taking data from a number of different databases and systems, joining them together, and then loading them wherever you want. For example, a common place that people are going now with their data is they're going into a warehouse like Snowflake. Uh, number two would be a data cat catalog. So that's when you have uh, data coming in that can be uh, discovered and, and, use, and used. Uh, three would be data governance and privacy. So making sure that uh, only certain employees have access to certain types of uh, information and having policies and procedures followed uh, across the, the organization. Uh, number four would be up, uh, upsizing the data to make sure that's quality uh, across uh, across whatever sources you want to use it. That can include deduplicating uh, things and standardizing it, as the example I gave before. And the final uh, final uh, product would be about master data management, and that's who making sure that the data that's produced is is trustworthy. So really cleansing it to making sure that the the data is as high quality as it can be. Yeah, and and that's a, a great, very uh, brief overview there, Brian. And I think it gives good sense of the scope here. Uh, the buzzword comes up again, again, again with this business data, right? And that's that's been a very effective place to be for a lot of businesses. Uh, Mostly, Brian, because it is the lifeblood of how a lot of businesses actually get anything done. Um, I, I was, you know, I always go to the YouTube channel when when I'm trying to get up to speed on a business that I don't know very well, and they put it front and center. They say, you know, that is that is really the advantage that companies have. That is that is really what 
companies own and what is proprietary to companies. It's it's a form of IP that we don't really think about too much, but it is huge in terms of making business decisions uh, and, and really kind of being able to out innovate your competitors. We are seeing the world generate an absolute avalanche of data and the rate of data generation is growing exponentially. It's it's easy for us as, as consumers to say, well, of course, companies are using big data and just leaving it at that. But when you actually get into the nitty degree details of making the data, collecting the data, sorting the data, storing the data, and then making it into actual information that you can use to make business decisions. That's a complex, that's a complex process that involves dozens of companies. So we talked a little bit about the business transition um, that they are currently going through from that perpetual license to software as a service um, and that subscription model. Uh, this is something that they started about six years ago. And uh, while that may sound like it's been a while, um, it takes a very long time for this stuff to totally turn over, Ryan. Yeah, we saw Microsoft go through this. We saw Autodesk go through this. We saw Adobe go through this. And in each case, the company has to give up a lot of near-term revenue, uh, short-term revenue in exchange for, for long-term revenue. So what does that do to the top line? It really slows the growth down or in some cases make it go negative. If you look back at the last few years, while this company's opportunity is massive and it is growing, top line growth between 2018 and 2020 was only about 5%. That's because that perpetual sales revenue is transitioning over to subscription-based revenue. Once you get past that, that painful part, then revenue growth becomes more and more normalized. And we're seeing early signs of that happening uh, through the first half of 2021. That's the most up-to-date financial information that we have in the company. Total revenue is growing at about a 10% rate. My guess is that longer term, once that transition is fully over, this company's normalized growth rate is somewhere around 15, maybe even 20%. But that's why looking backwards, the top line growth does not look impressive. Yeah, and it's hard to know exactly when the dynamics are going to take over and really start fueling top line growth for a business. Um, you know, you can get some lens into that by looking at the sources of revenue and just kind of understanding some of the dynamics here. So, the subscription revenue is what people are going to be incredibly focused on. It's really the thesis for this business, uh, and that is growing. I think it's uh, about twenty-five-ish percent year-over-year growth uh, most recently. They have that perpetual licensing revenue stream, uh, and that is shrinking, and it has shrunk dramatically. I think in 2020, it was about 40% of what it was in 2019, down to about $60 million. Um, That sounds bad, and I mean, this is where the company wants to be going. Right now, we're in this dynamic, Brian, where the growth of the subscription business is solid. It has to offset what's happening in the declines with the perpetual licensing business. I think what we'll start to see in 2021, 2022, 2023 is the perpetual licensing business is getting so small that the declines are going to be negligible. And the growth that we see on the subscription side is going to become much larger because it's getting on a bigger and bigger base. That's exactly what I expect to, to happen too. So it is going to be important for investors to watch that subscription-based growth revenue. And if you look over the last couple of years, the, the company's growth in the subscription-based revenue has actually been quite strong, uh, 34% as of the most uh, recent quarter. And within that subscription revenue, uh, the cloud is a only about a third of total subscription revenue, but that's growing the fastest at about 39%. Uh, percent. However, the company actually makes revenue from four different sources uh, currently. Uh, the first and the one that we should care, like you said the most about is that subscription-based revenue, and that's growing uh, quickly. Uh, the second is that perpetual license revenue, which is quickly going towards essentially uh, zero and becoming a rounding error for, for the company. However, beyond that, the company also makes money from maintenance revenue 
and professional uh, services revenue. That revenue is can be a one-time uh, in nature, but it is still a major component of total revenue uh, for the company. As of the most recent quarter, it's still about half of revenue and when compared to the previous period, it was basically at, at a standstill. So you also have to factor in that. The good news is when you combine all of that together, the company's gross margin here is still pretty good. Yeah, it's incredible. I mean, it's in it's in the seventy percent range, and uh, you know, I mean, the the numbers here are super interesting because the the professional services revenue we talk about this a lot with software as a service based businesses. Um, to some extent, you just kind of need it, right? It has to be there. It's almost support or cost of doing business, and uh, you have to accept it. It's a drag on growth rates for the most part. Sometimes it can be a drag on margins as well. Um, in this case, it's such a large portion of the overall revenue pie that I think the real value of the subscription business isn't fully being realized yet, um, and, and will probably won't be for a couple of years. You wonder if, as that gets bigger and bigger, it starts to look more and more attractive as a business. That's that, that's the hope. And like you, I was also impressed with that, although it is worth pointing out that the company does lump together maintenance revenue and professional services revenue. So it's hard to parse out exactly what the gross margin is on that professional services revenue. But overall, having a consolidated gross margin of in the 70s, the mid 70s, is really impressive. One more thing that's complicating that factor is uh, we'll get to the company's balance sheet in a second. But included in that gross margin is a pretty healthy hit for a uh, line item that it calls amortization of acquired uh, te technology. It basically has to expense its relationship with customers as an amortization fee. And last uh, last quarter, uh, that was a excuse me, the uh, last the first six months of the years, that was a thirty seven million dollar hit uh, uh, on the gross margin. So even including that factor, the company is still producing gross margins in the in the in the mid seventies is very impressive. Yeah, and and you know for a business that's doing 1.2, 1.3 billion in trailing 12 month revenue, when you get down to the margins, that is something that's going to materially move uh, the, the needle in terms of percentages. So it's something to keep an eye on. Um, I do think there's probably some margin upside for a business like this as subscription becomes a larger portion of the pie uh, over time. Um, and you know you'd think as subscription becomes a larger portion of the pie over time, Brian, the balance sheet will continue to improve because there will be more cash on hand for them to uh, kind of do what they want with. That, that's the hope. And that, that term that I just mentioned, the amortization of intangible assets, that actually shows up several different times on the, on the, in the income statement. And it's a pretty sizable number. Uh, for that reason, the net income statement here is not going to fully reflect the actual cash dynamics of what's happening in the business. So that's going to be something that investors need to keep in mind. If you look at the bottom line, uh, this company is producing uh, gap losses, but a, a lot of that are from actually non-operating uh, events, stock-based compensation, the amortization, and the company pays a ton in interest uh, every year. So if you strip out those three non-operating costs, the business would be solidly profitable. And I imagine uh, one of the focuses of the capital that they raise from going public will be paying down some of that debt if they're paying a lot out in interest. Yes, that's exactly right. So as of uh, before coming uh, public, this company, as of June 30th, had about $400 million uh, in cash, uh, but it's but it had a total of $4.8 in in assets. Uh, what's the delta between those two? Well, there's $2.4 billion in goodwill. That's not something that we love to see. And they also have $1 billion in customer relationship intangibles. That's the that's the thing they're am amortizing. Offsetting that is the fact that they have $2.7 billion in, in long-term debt. That's not all the surprising, considering this company was taken public, uh, taken private, excuse me, by, by private equity. It's common for them to load up. 
in the in the uh, the S1 that, that we did have, they did say a major use of the capital that they are raising is to wipe out that debt. Doing so will significantly reduce, if not eliminate, their interest expense entirely. So again, looking forward after the company comes public, the income statement should improve dramatically. Yeah, we're, we're going to get a little bit deeper on the dynamics of a private equity firm taking a company private and then bringing them public. But I, we have to talk about it briefly here, just because uh, the financials here look an awful lot like a company that has been taken private, right? This is this is a rinse and repeat formula that we see very often in this space. That's correct. It's common for companies, uh, private equity, to take these companies over, load them up with that, and then shoot them back to the to the public market. So it did make me happy the fact that the company did call out that it's going to use the proceeds from this capital raise to essentially wipe out as much of it as it could. Brian, anytime we're treading into uh, maybe a space that we have some understanding of, but could always use a little bit more help, we always look for the folks who have a pretty good finger on the pulse in the technology space. In this case, checking in with what Gartner has to say in their magic quadrant for the space uh, that, uh, that the company operates in. Yeah, the company touts right on its website, if you go right to its website, that it is a category leader in five of Gartner's uh, Magic, Quartner, uh, Magic Quadrant uh, categories. Uh, that's that that's impressive that the company is a leader in so many of them. That makes sense also since this company has been around for nearly 30 years. And it also has the customer base to back to back up that assertion. So the company has, uh, as of the most recent quarter, more than 5,000 total customers. 116 of them will spend at least $1 million on this platform uh, moving forward. And that also includes 84% of the Fortune uh, Fortune 100. So this company has done a great job at penetrating, penetrating the enterprise space. Yeah, I think the, the growth story for this business certainly exists with kind of the classic tailwinds that you'd expect with, you know, there's a lot of growth, a lot of spend in the industry um, that they're in. There's kind of the added benefit because um, we've seen this happen so many times, the license model over the subscription model, of you, the customers are already there. You're just moving them over to a more lucrative uh, system for you as the provider and and one that probably will keep them around longer. Um, and, and that's kind of a nice floor on a company like this or an investing case like this. It certainly is. And then just the natural tailwinds of what's going to happen to the data market over the next 10 years. I mean, is there any doubt in your mind that data is going to become more and more important as we move forward? Uh, to me, there there is no doubt. So the company does call out that its current total addressable market opportunity is $44 billion, and they expect that number to grow. So as we've said many times with companies like this, if it doesn't work as an investment, it's not because the opportunity isn't there. Yep. And we always like to be able to say that, right, Brian? <laughs> For sure. <laughs> um, I do want to zoom in on some of the company history and just some of the ownership dynamics here because it is a little unique and, it, and it's a, a different story than we often see for companies that we talk about uh, on the show. And so this company was once public. Uh, it, it listed publicly in 1999 on the NASDAQ. In 2015, was taken private by Premira and the Canada Pension Plan Investment Board which is a super interesting organization. Um, like that we could do a whole show on them. Um, but it's it's basically like a a public arm's length investment uh, arm for Canadian pensions, which is fascinating. Um, it is now looking to come public again, and it is coming public under relatively new leadership, this company, Informatica. Um, I, I think this is helpful background because it explains the stakeholders of this business. So 98.8% of the Class A shares are owned by Premira or CPP investments, and they own 99% of the voting power. We see that in all of the S1. I think some additional context, Brian, that's probably helpful here is the original founders are not in the picture for this business. 
Uh, we have Gaurav Dillon and Diaz Nesimoni. They are the co-founders of the company. And they've both moved on to other ventures. You don't see them in the uh, executive officers or, in, or really in the, the major stakeholders for this business. Um, and I think what's fascinating is Dillon moved on from Informatica in the mid-2000s and is now the CEO of SnapLogic. The company has a white paper on their website written by Dylan and James Markarian, who is the former CTO of Informatica, and it's called We Left Informatica, You Can Too. And in it, Brian, they say specifically, using Informatica in today's complex digital world is like running a modern company on a mainframe or riding a horse to the office, which is pretty wild to hear from the, from the co-founders. That is remarkable. I can't think of another instance where a couple where founders founded a company and then left to start another company, and then saying that other company is essentially uh, is essentially uh, too old to, to be dependent on. I mean, that is a remarkable thing that 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 is that has happened. Now, that's certainly not noteworthy, and the the role of the founders definitely matters a lot to me. But I still like to look at well, what's the company actually doing? What are the customers actually uh, actually saying? And if you look at the company's customer list, it's there's no doubt that they've done a great job at penetrating the biggest companies uh, uh, on the face of the earth. So that is a fascinating dynamic that I have never seen before. Me neither. And and I think you know to some extent you can explain it away by saying this is a business that's been around for almost three decades, and you know a, a company like a SnapLogic is is newer to the space. And it's only natural that new entrants are going to be kind of cloud first in the way that they approach things, a little bit more dynamic, a little bit more nimble. All of that makes sense to me. It is it is a little interesting. It is a little bizarre. And I thought it was kind of noteworthy. Um, I, I also want to point out that the current leadership team is fairly new here. And so we have the current CEO, Amit Walia, uh, who was the product and marketing chief and rose to executive in 2020, replacing Anil Chakravarti, who was put in charge once the company was taken private and oversaw the company's shift to the cloud and to subscription revenue. So we have a relatively new CEO um, and, and the person who was not necessarily at the helm for this massive transformation that the company's gone through over the last six years. Yeah, on the flip side, as part of our standard due, due diligence, we always like to head to Glassdoor and say, well, what do the people that know this leader best think of him? Uh, and uh, Wally gets really good reviews on Glassdoor. Uh, the company itself gets 4.3 stars out of five. 96% of them approve of the CEO, and that's on a few hundred ratings. So that's likely to be a very accurate number. I don't love it when, when CEOs are brand new to the corner office, but I feel a whole lot better about them when they've been at the company for a long time and have risen through the ranks. So I think investors should feel pretty good about Wally's rise to the to the quarter office. Yeah, you know, I think you can kind of spin that however you want to. You know, you can look at something like that and say, "Oh, well, I'm you know, I'm surprised that in bringing this company public, they didn't uh, put someone in charge who has already run a publicly traded company." On the flip side, you could say, "Oh, well, I don't want an outsider who doesn't know the company culture running a business and is there as you know someone to basically bring the company public and um, is more kind of shareholder and Wall Street minded than company minded." So it really kind of comes down to what narrative you want to buy in there, Brian. Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with with both. Uh, personally, I I value tenure uh, more than uh, anything else, and the fact that he's been there for eight years does give me uh, comfort. And a lot of companies, especially founders, the first time they're running a public company is when they take their company uh, public. So you also have to balance that. Yeah. All right, Brian. Putting a bow on all this, uh, when you look at the company uh, and you look at you know the, the investing pitch here in its totality, what do you like? What what don't you like? 
Well, I like uh, the, the I, I really like the SaaS transition going from a perpetual to a SaaS business model is one we've seen work time and time again. I think there are signs that the company has a strong brand leadership uh, in the space, and I think once you get started on this platform, it's hard to get off. So I think the company does have a competitive advantage that's built for itself. I'm really impressed with the uh, the gross gar margins. I think the net income statement is going to be dramatically understated looking backwards, and is prime for rapid improvement uh, moving forward. Love the customers that they have. I think the the long-term opportunity uh, is there. And I was pleasantly surprised with the Glassdoor ratings and the, and the leadership. Offsetting that is the fact that the uh, the founders are gone and it's not great to see them poking fun uh, at the company. Uh, the balance sheet is pretty ugly pre-IPO. I don't know what's going to look like fully post-IPO. We don't know the valuation. We don't really know what the long-term growth trajectory is. We don't know the cash flow statement. And I am always wary about buying private companies that are coming public from private equity. I've seen that not work out more often than it does. So because of that, this is more, more of a pass for me than anything else. But I do see reasons to like it. Yeah, I, I'm with you on the, the private equity side. I mean, I think you know, markets exist because there's a variety of people in them with different timeframes, different objectives. And um, I, I've seen that, you know, the, the valuation for this company coming public could be somewhere in, in the double digit billions, like, you know, 10, 11, something like that, uh, which would be a, a pretty solid return, you know, for this private equity firm over five or six years, basically a double from where they bought them. Um, I, I do worry that those types of firms are not necessarily uh, incentivized to build the best long-term businesses, but are really incentivized to maximize returns for the period that they own the business. And so, you know, I, I worry sometimes that as a public investor, getting a company that's been brought public again, uh, you wind up in a spot where you're kind of a bag holder for, for a company that has been put in a position where it looks great and, and there's a really great narrative to sell. Um, but you're the one stuck with the debt load that this private equity company has put on this business. Yeah, I think, I think all that's fair. And as I said, we don't know the valuation. And to me, this is a company that I would definitely focus on the valuation. Uh, the company is no longer in hyper growth phase. Its growth is going to be, uh, I think, probably dependable, but but relatively uh, muted. So long-term, maybe the company grows at a 15, 20% uh, rate. This isn't going to be like a MongoDB or a HubSpot that is just now entering the hyper-growth phase. Uh, that phase is behind this company. So when you do that, you do have to be more focused on valuation. If it came public at 10 billion, 12 billion, I think that that would be a pretty fair number. If we've seen what's happened with a lot of companies like this, where they come public at 20 times sales or 30 times sales, uh, I would be far more price sensitive. Yep, I think that's 100% right. Um, and I have to say, shout out to John for putting this one on our radar. You know, while, while it is one that we weren't like overwhelmingly interested in, uh, I think it's it's a cool watchlist stock. It's always interesting to look at businesses in transition. And I think it led to some really cool conversations just about, you know, the, the way that different people in the market operate and, and kind of what to look for in businesses. And I always like learning more about the way that data works and the integrations and what's actually happening in the market. It's a huge market. And if you're a tech investor, it's one you need to know. Yep. Brian. You're one of my favorite tech investors. Thank you so much for hopping on today's show with me. Thanks, Dylan. Great to be here. Listeners, that's going to do it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or you want to reach out and say, hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet us at mfindustryfocus. If you're looking for more of our stuff, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for all his work behind the glass today, and thank you for listening. Until next time. Cool on.